all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 291 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the arts and literary magazine episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that uh, there was a magazine, an arts and literary magazine, as it were, published from 1915 to 1916 in New York City. And its name was indeed two. 91. Yes, turns out that there was an, an art gallery at the time that uh, was owned and operated by a guy named Alfred Stieglitz, and he called it Gallery 291. And then from there, they based this literary magazine called 291 from its same name. And with that wonderful, in-depth knowledge about the arts and literary magazine from 1915 to 1916, New York City, called 291. I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee. And his name was Alfred Stieglitz. Cassandra. Maybe, maybe that was too long of a pause between, and his name was... And Alfred Stieglitz. It's entirely possible, but they still don't know who you are. Tim. And my hey, name My name is Tim. Go. Tim Stieglitz. I <laughs> legally had my name changed to that. Uh, Stieglitz, have you ever met anybody with a very old-fashioned, you know, Nazi name as Stieglitz before? I truly do not recall that ever having happened. No. What's the funniest name, last name you've ever heard somebody had in person? Oh my gosh. The funniest last name. Mine was Hankerin. Like you're Hankerin for a, a story. I guess I haven't had the pleasure of really knowing someone with just a an obscenely funny last name. Now, I don't know why this one stuck out to me, but I do remember when I was a kid... There was a, 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 a young guy by the name of Danny Sturgeon. And I was like, is that like a doctor? And they're like, no, no, Sturgeon. And, I, and you're thinking of surgeon. I'm like, oh. And I looked it up in the encyclopedia because, <laughs> tell us more, Grandpa. Um, <laughs> we didn't have the internet back then. And so I am looking, looking up Sturgeon and it's fish. And I remember thinking that your name was Danny Fish, and that was that was funny to me. Um, I had a guy whose last name was Price, and I called him Jason Fisher Price, but nothing natural, <laughs> not, nothing nothing natural. I, I you know, sorry, I'm not that I'm not that cool. I guess I get Cuisinart. There's always that one guy that's oh. Cuisinart. It's like, yes, my name doesn't even rhyme with Cuisinart, but well, I'm, I'm glad you enjoy it. Since we're talking about funny names, I I saw a really great version of Benedict Cumberbatch yesterday. Oh, really? Yes. Benadryl Cucumber. Really? <laughs> and wasn't it Serena Williams uh, who called, uh, she was asked uh, in an interview, like, who's your favorite actor? And she goes, oh, man, I, I love this guy. 
Philip Seaman Hoffmore. Oh, man. Philip Seaman Hoffmore. The late Seaman Hoffmore. And then, of course, we've got the beautiful uh, Adele Dazim. Yes. Which was, you know, good old John Travolta. And Dennis Quaid called Saoirse Ronan. Uh, oh, man, I can't even remember what she said or what he said. Poor guy. Sashi Rahanahana. I mean, it wasn't like that, but it was it was probably <laughs> as ridiculous as... He, he, he went full Jim Carrey. We don't know how that happened. And there's your episode title. Yes. Spiegelman or Steigelman. Uh, do you remember the Spiegel catalog? No. What was the Spiegel catalog? It was like the, this high-end merchandise catalog back in the 80s and, and, and very early 90s. They kind of started going by the wayside around, I want to say, mid-90s for sure. It was kind of like the year-round Neiman Marcus catalog thing. And so you would be able to get the high fashion stuff and all this highfalutin crap that people, only rich people would really be able to afford. But yeah. Should was look up like, the, I'm sure there's really cool commercials you can find on YouTube for it. Was it like the sharper image of the 80s? Kind of, but just as much geared toward women specifically as sharper image is kind of more geared to or was more geared toward men generally. Gotcha. So, so more vibrators, not as much dealios that keep your, your beers cooler. Sure, yeah. Overpriced Sky Mall stuff. Yeah. At the regular mall. Let's <laughs> go to the mall. So, we, we okay, we've been ragging on MoviePass for a while. And I know we don't have a, a true news segment this week. But with the bullshit that's been going on with Helios and Mathis and Analytics Incorporated on the NASDAQ as HMNY, have you been keeping up with the actual shit show that is their stock price? Not the stock price, but as I am still a MoviePass subscriber, only because I can go to the landmark right down the road for me, I, I did receive an email about their new terms of agreement or what they're planning on doing. Yeah, I got that email too. I, I, I Folks, I, I finally jumped ship. Um, I, there, there, were, there are no e-ticket theaters around me and apparently if you're not near if you're not near an e-ticket theater you just can't see movies right now the they're literally pulling shady shit through the app because apps uh use location data when you access the app so it tell it can tell that you're looking up showtimes and it'll show you an available showtime and then you will go to the theater and then the showtime the showtime will disappear so that you can't check into it and buy a ticket. Showtimes are uh, officially gone, generally, by 4 o'clock. And they will only have sporadic showtimes turned on throughout the day. And then they pretty much just kill it all after 4 o'clock. So your best bet when you have a movie pass and you don't have e-ticketing. Because e-ticketing is not a part of this. Is you have to try and go... To the outside kiosk, if your if your theater has one, at like two o'clock in the morning, and try and buy your ticket, because most of the show times will have already disappeared, even if you tried to go when the box office opens at like ten o'clock in the morning. This is what we have been dealing with. 
And yes, they're still doing surge pricing on the weekends. They're dropping that you, you can't access the new movies over the weekend because this wonderful new program that they've come up with doesn't kick in until August 15th, which is what I know Tim was talking about. And basically after two weeks of just being straight fucked over, I finally quit. I gave up. I'm going a list people. I've got, I, I don't like my local AMCs because they're just kind of shitty all around. Uh, yet, I'm I'm willing to put up with that for the ability to watch at least three movies a week, not this new bullshit with three movies a month and up to five dollars off an additional ticket when you go to buy more tickets. Now, they say that they are going to remove peak pricing and they say that they're going to remove the restrictions on almost all not see see that's that's the thing almost all new releases on august 15th so if your billing date is on or around then then that's you know when you're gonna have to go with this new thing and they're already doing push notifications for logging into the app and then it's like oh hey we've got a new terms and conditions you should probably opt in because they're not saying what they're going to do if you refuse to opt in (laughs) um but they announced this plan it's three movies a month and you get six uh and then up to six i'm sorry up to five dollars off each additional movie ticket and that's gonna be ten dollars a month and they went from seven cents a share to 10 cents a share and they're already back down to seven cents a share again and that's as of today yes that august, was as of today. august 7th or whatever today is yeah they, they closed at seven cents on friday they announced this plan on monday morning bounced back up to 10 percent 10 cents a share and then by the end of uh close of business today and i think actually by uh, by the end of day yesterday they were down to eight cents a share, and then they came back down to seven cents a share today. So, um, look. So, so if you're on the annual plan, your annual plan won't change uh, in terms of. Then that's the beauty of this. This is where they they have finally fucked over the annual people. I I was wondering how long it was going to take before they finally started fucking over the annual subscribers, and this is where they're going to get them, because. On the annual subscriber plan, they weren't subject to peak to, to the peak pricing, but they were subject to all the movies disappearing and the movie showtimes disappearing. So these new people who are going to be basically forced into this three movie a month plan are, are they're supposed to have better access to movies and movie times, but the annual subscribers won't be. Unless they somehow get them to agree to change the terms on their end, in which case now they don't get unlimited movies, which is what they signed up for, but three movies a month. And this is, I don't know, this is hilarious to me. I will say, though, that if there's a money.cnn.com article by Danielle uh, Wiener-Bronner, and it's titled, What's Next for Movie Pass?, 
She writes that MoviePass CEO Mitch Lowe will join CNN's chief business correspondent Christine Romans on Markets Now on Wednesday. We're recording this on the 7th of August. And so this will be on the 8th of August. So you'll, hopefully you'll be able to look up if you haven't seen highlights or seen this for yourself. Hopefully you'll be able to pull up the interview on YouTube as you listen to the show. Uh, but a uh, live interview there. And it says that he'll have a lot to talk about. The article goes on to say the struggling company has been rapidly changing its business model in an effort to keep investors from selling off stock. So far, it hasn't had much luck. On Monday, the company announced that it will limit customers to three movies per month, down from one per day. It also walked back its decision to raise prices from $9.99 to $14.99 per month, among other moves to burn less cash. The efforts helped boost shares of parent company Helios and Matheson, HMNY slightly, but the stock has plunged this year from $39 last October to just $0.08 cents last month. The company approved a reverse split, a cosmetic change that boosted the stock 250-fold back up to $21. Since then, it's fallen all the way back to $0.07. Cents. Uh, there's very little bit more, uh, just a little tiny more beyond that. It's just kind of a blurb article here, but I do encourage you to check it out if you like. Again, money.cnn.com. What's next for Movie Pass by Danielle Wiener Bronner. Now, I'm definitely going to see if I can check out, if I can check this interview out because even though I am not a subscriber anymore, I, I am completely interested in seeing where this, ha where, what ends up happening here. Because if somehow they do manage to survive, because if you cancel your subscription, you're not allowed back for nine months. Except for the fact that if you use virtual cards, uh, then you can generate a new credit card number, and that's that, and, and so you can get around it that way. You can change your email, and as long as you either a buy a new phone in the intervening nine months, or just go grab yourself a burner cell for thirty, forty bucks, you can get back into Movie Pass anytime you want. So I, I'm I'm kind of hoping they make it just because I think it'll be interesting. My biggest problem is is that even with these changes, they're just not reliable enough. They, I mean, just with my own, what they've done to me personally and making it so that I can't see movies. Even if you are getting rid of the peak pricing, which is something else that they said they're going to do with this new three movie a month plan. They said they're getting rid of ticket verification so you don't have to take a picture of your stub. The, even then, they, they're like, oh, well, we're gonna let you see most of the movies. They're not gonna let you see any movies. They, they say up to five dollars. Well, a penny off is up to five dollars. I don't see anybody getting five dollars off of a movie ticket. And I would be surprised if that happens for anyone. I, I'm just not, Impressed with what MoviePass has done, other than the gimmick that allowed me to save a shit ton of movies, shit ton of money on movies over this last year. And thank you very much to MoviePass for that. I'll never forget you. And to kind of make an offshoot quote, paraphrase of Douglas Adams and the Dolphins from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So long and thanks for all the flicks. Well, it sounds like regardless if you wanted to forget about MoviePass, you're not ever going to forget about MoviePass because this is going to be the advertisement for MoviePass that just keeps on giving for them. Just all their fuck-ups just becomes more promotion and... 
once I see this stuff go into effect on August 15th, I'm just going to see how it pans out. I have MoviePass. My significant other has a MoviePass. So I'm thinking about definitely canceling one and signing up for that AMC Stubbs dealio thing because again I mean I love movie pass because uh, for using it at uh, at at the landmark and I love the landmark theater by me because all they show for the most part are indie movies and I've seen so many documentaries and so many smaller films that haven't even been released in Houston and one of the movies that we'll be reviewing next week hopefully three identical strangers and I saw that like well over a month ago so I really, really like that aspect of it. And plus, there's not really that many AMCs that are super close to me. Out of convenience, Movie Pass would have been nice. But hey, you know what? I've had to drive 25 minutes before to go to a movie theater before Movie Pass. And don't get me wrong. I'm also lucky enough because of where I live in the Houston area that... My Cinemark still has $5 matinees and $5 Tuesdays. So even if for whatever reason I've burned through my three a week with A-list, I'm really close to my local Cinemark and can still get a good deal on movies, so I'm not going to have to be spending a ton on that either. I uh, am, And I'm fortunate enough that I've got an AMC, you know, less than, I mean, like between five and ten minutes away based on traffic. It's just in a different direction. So, and then I have a second AMC that is about 20 minutes away. And it's large, I mean, it's a larger AMC, but I, I, so I can still at least have access to that as well. But I mean, if I remember correctly, Landmark is e ticketing, right? Yes, they do e ticketing there. And there's a couple yeah, other so theaters around town that do e ticketing. Yeah, you should be totally good then because, and, and I mean, full disclosure, my subscription, I canceled, but my subscription doesn't run out to the 17th. So, I mean, I'm still going to be going in for whatever it's worth and trying and try and trying to use my, my exploit membership. it as much so. as possible while you can. That's right. What are they going to do? Kick me out? <laughs> <laughs> well, quickly here, I have a, a little news piece that I want to contribute via IndieWire.com. Fox Searchlight will keep doing what it does best under new Disney ownership. We all know, of course, that Disney recently bought out. Fox. Uh, this here is written by Kate Erbland, and it was posted today on August 7th, and it says this. As the $71.3 billion sale of Rupert Murdoch's 20th Century Fox movie and television assets to box office Titan Disney moves forward, the question of what will happen to specialty distributor Fox Searchlight has been answered. As IndieWire's Ann Thompson noted last month, quote, so far Disney executives have been friendly, but current Fox film chairwoman Stacy Snyder wasted no time announcing new multi-year deals and exalted chairman titles for 18-year Searchlight veterans Stephen Gilula and Nancy Utley, riding high after their multiple Oscar wins for Best Picture winner The Shape of Water and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which took home Best Actress for Frances McDormand. Both films topped $100 million worldwide. They needn't have worried. During a Tuesday afternoon earnings conference call, Disney movie chief Bob Iger promised that Searchlight would continue its normal operations under the ownership of Disney, saying, quote, it's hard to argue that Searchlight needs help from anyone, end quote, he said, pointing to the specialty outfit's many Oscar wins. 
quote, our strategy is to give the studio what it needs to support what it does best, end quote. The specialty division is already shaping up to have a high fall festival and awards profile led by a buzzy Oscar contender from Yorgos Lanthimos, New York Film Festival opener The Favorite, a period royal intrigue starring Olivia Coleman, Rachel Wise, and Emma Stone, along with David Lowry's romantic caper The Old Man and the Gun, starring Robert Redford and Sissy Spacek, and Marielle Heller's true crime Can You Ever Forgive Me, starring Melissa McCarthy as an author, turned con artist, and Richard E. Grant as her boozy sidekick. Earlier this year, the outfit also opened Wes Anderson's animated frontrunner, Isle of Dogs. The company previously scored an Academy Awards nomination for Best Animated Feature for Anderson's The Fantastic Mr. Fox. Over its tenure, Searchlight has won 36 Oscars out of 132 Oscar nominations and scored a total 15 Best Picture nods, including four out of the past 10 Oscar winners from Slumdog Millionaire and 12 Years a Slave to Birdman and Shape of Water. That's not the business Disney is in, which puts Searchlight in the rare position of being allowed autonomy in an acquisition there's no duplication. End all quotes there, and the article does go on for a bit more. Uh, if you want to read more about this, IndieWire.com, Fox Searchlight will keep doing what it does best under new Disney ownership, written by Kate Herbland. Uh, Matt, what do you think about this real quick? I, it's kind of nice to hear this because you, with Bob Iger and with Disney, you just never know what they have hiding up their sleeve. We weren't entirely sure if they were going to go and not silence, but put a clean Disney-like blanket over the type of movies that they produce or distribute. So it's kind of nice to hear that they're going to back off from the awardsy flicks that Fox does well at putting out. Let's just ask George Lucas what he thinks about Disney saying, no, no, we don't want to mess with anything. <laughs> uh, guys, uh, you have to remember one very important thing. Disney has had multiple arms of distribution and production so that they can make grown-up movies too. Hollywood Pictures, Touchstone, just to name two. They don't need Fox Fox Searchlight. They will keep the name so that they can have their awards arm viable in something that has already been listed. But make no mistake. <laughs> They're going to make award-winning movies. They're just not going to do it <laughs> the same way Fox Searchlight's been doing it. And I like Disney, but I can tell you right now, that's bullshit. And you can quote me on that. <laughs> And that's my micro news. Yay! All right, well then let's get into our actual real bonus segment. Next week, we're, we're going to do news for real, but I just, with all the changes and all the crap that's been going on with Movie Pass, we really had to, uh, I really felt it was uh, important to talk about, not to mention the Disney move, uh, merger being officially approved here in the States. There's only one last hurdle. That is huge news as well, and we didn't want to go two weeks without talking about that stuff. So uh, that is why we did that, and I'm glad we did. So next week we'll have some real news, but uh, this week it's three squared, right? Why, yes, it is. Well, then let's do it, folks. It's the movie we Thank you. 
right, so we very briefly threw out there the fact that we were going to do our favorite 90s action flicks this week for our three square. But the problem is very quickly realizing that the 90s were like a really, really, really good decade for action movies as a whole, not to mention certain subgenres like sci-fi action to a lesser degree thriller action or action thrillers. And so um, there's just there's just no way we can really just bring it down into three. So after Tim and I were talking about it for a couple of minutes and Tim was like frantically changing some picks around because I was like, well, wait a minute, that, that doesn't seem right. And then he's like, oh, man, OK, no, I guess we can't. So, yeah, so we we ended up deciding this will be part one of our favorite 90s action flicks so that we can come back and talk about this again and talk about different aspects of the 90s that we really liked in terms of the different styles of action that were given to us in this beautiful decade of action movie goodness. So first up from me, though, and I'm doing this in kind of a third favorite, second favorite, and favorite for this round of favorite 90s action flicks. I've got two of them coming at us from 1993 and one coming at us from 1994. Moreover, two of mine also feature Sylvester Stallone. Now, I did want to do, and remember, I mean, it's so hard because you have, like, The Matrix came out in the 90s. Of course, T2 came out in the 90s. You have stuff like Point Break and Con Air, Speed, uh, Under Siege, Air Force One, Goldeneye, Last Action. I mean, so uh, Hard Boiled, that was one that I almost put on this list. As, because I really like Chow Yun-Fat, and that was like huge in the 90s to get this just really great crossover international action flick. But I just felt so strongly about these three, mainly because they are so, so ubiquitous, not just to action movies as a whole, but to the 90s. And that is why I've gone this way. So, I mean, just... Just know that if you don't hear one of your favorite action movies, it's not because we don't care, because we th- there's just too many to choose. And so that's why we're copping out with part one. <laughs> and we'll come visit this again at some point, I'm sure. So first up, my third choice, uh, third favorite choice, Demolition Man. At the end of a century... Ravaged by violence, a society of perfect order will arise. Criminals will be frozen and reprogrammed in cryogenic prisons. The prisoners are ice cubes. Their criminal instincts are being reprogrammed as they sleep. Aggression and deviant behavior will be totally eliminated. He's a criminal the likes of which you have never seen. In a bad time, he was the worst. I'm going to love running this place. But in the year 2032... This morning, Simon Phoenix escaped from this cryo facility. We are, quite frankly, not equipped to deal with the situation. Amidst a world of peace and calm... We're police officers. We're not trained for this kind of violence. How was the fiendish Simon Phoenix apprehended back in the 20th? In the end, it took just one man. John Spartan. You mean the demolition man? The conditions of your parole are full reinstatement into the SAPD and immediate assignment to the apprehension of Simon Phoenix. Two mortal enemies. Just dropped in to say hi. From another time. Pass us over, John. 
something new and improved. Oh, help. Will be unleashed on a future that isn't big enough for the both of them. Sylvester Stallone. Wesley Snipes. Demolition Man. Yes! The directorial debut of Marco Brambilla. Or Brambilla. Demolition Man. 1993 American science fiction action film. And it stars Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes. This was also a very early breakout role for Sandra Bullock. Because obviously Speed was out around this time. And... Uh, so you've got that that you have to make sure that you're keeping track of because Speed came out in 1994 and Demolition Man was 1993. This is a... <laughs> now, remember, you're in 1993 and you're looking at this kind of like weird post-apocalyptic version of L.A. that's taking place in, get this, 1996. <laughs> and so um, you've got Super Cop. <laughs> played by uh, uh, John Spartan, played by Sylvester Stallone. And he is doing everything he can to take down the evil, bloodthirsty Simon Phoenix, played by Wesley Snipes. And through, shenan through the shenanigans of Simon Phoenix, poor John Spartan ends up framed for the death of like 39 people. And he gets put into cryogenic stasis and he is there for 70 years and through some sort of glitch wesley snipes gets released into the public and is wreaking havoc on a now utopian los angeles society where cursing is forbidden and god help you if you don't know how to use the three seashells <laughs> i <laughs> Cursing forbidden. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what? And you're saying there was no skid row there? No homeless? <laughs> That's right. At least not on the surface. But don't worry. Dennis Leary takes care of that. Because this is the 90s. You see, this is what I mean when I say that these movies that I have chosen are not just ubiquitous for action movies, but ubiquitous to the 90s. Uh, yes, because don't worry, Dennis Leary is here to help you out. Um, and, and it's also very important that we remember you also get to see the likes of Bob Gunton in this one. Benjamin Bratt, early Benjamin Bratt. And of course, Rob Schneider's in here as well. Uh, I, I, I just must tell you that this movie is just absolutely amazing it's great because uh, it's great on on a lot of different levels it's it's um it's lots of fun on the action level and it's extremely self-aware in 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 the way that it attacks accepted forms of telling the action story and you've and and as and as overwrought as unnecessarily overwrought as it is as most action movies are it never loses its edge because it is honing its edge on itself it's sitting there and deconstructing everything that makes race and class things that we fight over but at the same time it does it against the 
unstoppable, courageous, good guy versus the evil, the truly evil mastermind. I just love this movie. I think it's fantastic. And remember, it was, it was good to go to Taco Bell after you watched this movie. Next up, also from 1993, this time directed by Rennie Harlan, Cliffhanger. That's right, folks. Not much of a not not much of a not much in the way of a lot to talk about in this trailer. But when you hear Nasun Dorman or whatever the heck it is that they're playing uh, <laughs> over the uh, over the trailer, it's 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 kind of one of those things like, oh man, oh I totally remember this. When it was this this movie was so all over the place in terms of action movies that it was one of the things that was parodied in the second Ace Ventura movie for crying out loud except in, in except instead of having the good guy be Sylvester Stallone and the bad guy be Wesley Snipes this time the good guy is Sylvester Stallone who is a former mountain climber and rescue ranger who finds himself inadvertently stopping one of the largest robberies in history, pulled off by Eric Quaylen, played by John Lithgow. Yes, John Lithgow, because he plays such a fucking awesome bad guy. Just an amazing bad guy. Also, we've got uh, Michael Rooker is in this film. Uh, even, even folks, Janine Turner, yes, I believe uh, Northern Exposure? Right, I believe it was the TV show in the '90s that like made her like super famous, and she's in this movie as well. You've got lots of great, great '90s character actors to be found in this film, and you also get to see and 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 ask yourself questions like, how does a shirtless Sylvester Stallone survive in an icy mountain cave? I don't know, but he does. How? Do, <laughs> How does a how how does a man who only who, who has great training and great physique, but is completely out of practice, how is he able to survive and outwit international bank thieves with tons of money, tons of supplies, and tons of guns? I don't know, but he does. Don't ask questions. Sit back and enjoy. This movie is absolutely fantastic. I thoroughly enjoy this movie mainly because what 
where Demolition Man is funny, Cliffhanger is takes a, a much more traditionally, air quotes here, serious route to getting through the story and the plot of the film. But one thing that the movie does right is proving that you have to respect nature if you're going to use nature to beat someone else. And I don't mean this as like an environmental kind of a thing. That's not, it's not, it's not what I'm getting at. John Lithgow plays a very, very good bad guy, but he is a good, he, he plays a great bad guy because as the bad guy, as the evil mastermind in this film, he understands that he's playing chess against Sylvester Stallone's character, uh, character of Gabriel Walker. And one doesn't care about the environment that they're on, which is the mountain, they're on uh, the mountain, but Gabe does. And he very quickly comes to realize that while he can't out-muscle this guy, he can outmaneuver him because he understands the mountain better and he respects the mountain more. But that doesn't mean that Quaylen doesn't know what the stakes are. And so it's fun to kind of watch this more serious and intense chess match play out between these two guys and yet still have all of the completely stupid action tropes that existed in 90s action films. And that is why I think this movie is, uh, is, is a little bit more superior than Demolition Man, although I love them both. Finally, probably one, uh, I mean, I would honestly put this in my top, oh man, definitely top five, possibly top three of all 90s action flicks, no matter what. 1994's True Lies. How'd it go at the convention, honey? You were the big hit of the show. It's fantastic. It's, I love the computer business. For 15 years, Harry Tasker's been leading a double life. Mr. President, one of our best men is inside. Transmitting now. Right on time. I don't believe I've met you before. Rehnquist. Harry Rehnquist. Listen to the following code word. Helen. H-E-L-E-N. Now, they're about to collide. What's your exit strategy? I'm gonna walk right out of the front gate. May I see your invitation, please? Sure. Here's my invitation. Oh, yeah, that worked good. Right out the old front gate. Can you me back a second? Mr. Tasker's office. Hi, it's Helen. Is he in? Harry's in a sales meeting, Mrs. Tasker. It's not like he's saving the world or anything. I see this is the problem with terrorists. They're really inconsiderate when it comes to people's schedules. Could you press the button for the top floor, please? Hi, Helen. Harry forgot something back at the office. Whenever I can't sleep, I just ask him to tell me about his day. Six seconds and I'm out. Maybe it's just that you're not in touch with your feminine side. Harry! Uh-oh. What were you doing there? I wouldn't believe it if I told you. Do you know what this is? It's a snow cone maker. Is it a water heater? From James Cameron, director of Aliens and T2. Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's a Soviet Murph 6 from an SS-22N launch vehicle. I married Rambo. Jamie Lee Curtis. Have you ever killed anyone? 
Yeah, but they were all bad, true lies. What can I say? I'm a spy. Now this film, of course, action comedy, 1994 action comedy film. This one is written, directed, and of course co-produced because he has to do everything. <laughs> James Cameron, yes, stars Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tom Arnold, Art Malik, Tia Carrere, Bill Paxton, Eliza Dushku, Grant Hesloff, and even Charlton Heston with a fucking eye patch. Jesus, are you serious? Let's do this. I mean, where you cannot go wrong with this movie. <laughs> Poor Harry Tasker. This is a guy who's leading a double life. He looks like a boring, like, computer salesman. I, is it computer watch salesman? I can't even remember. I think it's computer salesman. Uh, who goes away on stupid, boring business trips and conventions and stuff like that. And has the wonderful, loving wife who's like a, a CPA or something like that. And a daughter who is your typical, Oh, brooding teenage daughter who thinks that her parents are uncool and don't understand her and don't care about her enough, right? And so you've got this just standard dynamic here, and yet that's not what's happening because Harry, in point of fact, is like the American version of fucking James Bond, right? He is the ultimate super secret super spy. And instead of having Q... He has Albert Gibson, played by Tom Arnold. Yes, Tom Arnold. Uh, we have amazing uh, supporting cast, including Art Malik and Tia Carrere, who who are filling our villain side of the of the uh, of the bad guys. But we also have kind of a wonderful little B plot featuring Helen Tasker, who is trying to get a little adventure in her life. Through used car salesman Simon, played by, yes, Bill Paxton, the late, great Bill Paxton. And this was at a time when Bill Paxton was not quite running the show. He hadn't quite gotten up into twister status yet, but he was still coming off of things like aliens, right? Game over, man! Game over! This is kind of carrying off of that aspect of the type of character that Bill Paxton played at the time. And it is it is a straight B-plot of the movie, but it works so well because the B-plot ultimately blends in with the A-plot of the flick and creates a wonderful dynamic that ha that pays off by the end. If you haven't seen this movie and... I know that maybe some some of our younger audience might not have seen this movie yet. Please, 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 please go see this movie. It is utterly fantastic and absolutely amazing. I cannot say enough good things about it because not only is it well shot and well paced because this is Cameron at his best in the 90s. It's also Arnold at his best in the 90s. It's Tom Arnold at his best in the 90s. It's Jamie Lee Curtis still showing off everything that she's had through the 70s and the 80s in the 90s. Her body. Well, that too. Yes. I mean, hey, come on. <laughs> I don't own trading places for nothing. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> But in all seriousness, this movie is just absolutely amazing. You got to check it out. So my three flicks again, 1993's Demolition Man, Cliffhangers, 
1993's Cliffhanger, also both of those starring Sylvester Stallone, and 1994's True Lies starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Take it away, Tim. I'm going to begin my three squared with asking you, podcasting listening audience, what is an action movie? And I'm going to quickly answer that by saying that action flicks aren't driven by characterizations or serious storytelling, but they are driven by stunts that are done by real people. And action movies also feature buttloads of testosterone and usually cheer-worthy one-liners. All of that overshadows that thought-provoking storytelling and characterization-ness. Films like Bullet from 1968, The French Connection from 1971, and Dirty Harry from also 1971 are considered to be some of the very first Hollywood action flicks. They had in common a car chase as the main action set piece of the entire film. People often look back now, especially younger folk, look back now and consider these flicks thrillers because they are not your conventional action films that we think of now. The late 80s and early 90s brought us what we consider now to be the fathers of modern action flicks. You had Stallone, you had Schwarzenegger, you had Bruce Willis. The action flicks featuring these performers are the ones that helped the genre actually become one of the dominant box office genres during the 80s and 90s. And really what happened with these movies? Why didn't we see a lot of action movies like how they were then now? And a lot of it's because of how expensive they are to produce. I mean, a lot of insurance guys. You have a lot of people doing these crazy fire stunts, falling from tall buildings. It's going to cost a lot of money. But then you also had an aspect of these flicks that were considered not only repetitive, but racist You had a lot of terrorist groups who were the bad guys of these flicks, and they were usually Russian. I mean, in the 80s, communism, it made sense that these guys were Russian. But now, if every single bad guy terrorist was an Arab, was Russian, was North Korean, was Chinese, it's going to, like, turn a lot of heads and piss a lot of people off. I mean, look at the remake of Red Dawn from 2000 and... Well, it was supposed to come out in 2011, I think. I think it came out in 2012, 2013. The invading force was supposed to be China. Well, China got pissed off, so they had to go through and digitally change all the costume pieces and props to North Korean costume pieces and props just to make China happy. The movie wasn't even that great to begin with, so... And also, another reason why we don't see a lot of action movies like the ones from the 80s and 90s now, which they're making more of a resurgence now because of nostalgia, is because of the storylines. Often, they used the same formula, but changed the setting. Even with movies like Air Force One and Under Siege, you have the Bruce Willis Die Hard movies. I mean, Die Hard, that was the beginning of a formula that gave back (laughs) to the box office over and over again. Well, my first 90s favorite action movie, and these aren't really like my all-time favorites. I'm just trying to pick ones that are in like the subgenres of action movies, I suppose. 
there are a number of subgenres in action movies. You have action dramas, you have the buddy cop movies like Rush Hour and 48 Hours and Lethal Weapon, even Hot Fuzz. Uh, you have the action comedies like Beverly Hills Cop. The action thrillers like the James Bond movies. You have the caper and heist flicks. The diehard movies where the movie pretty much takes place in either the same or a limited location. For example, uh, the first Raid movie, science fiction action movies. One of mine is going to be a science fiction action flick. And then you also have action horror, which Aliens introduced the subgenre of action horror, and that continued over the years to even Riddick and Pitch Black and, and, and whatnot. So there's a lot of fun subgenres that we can play with in future three squares of our favorite action movies from the 90s or 80s or, you know, whatever decade we want to... Actually, you know, the decades are limited when it comes to action movies, so my first pick is from 1990, and it is RoboCop 2. About a year ago, we gave this city RoboCop. Ready for duty, partner? Nothing I'd rather do. I think he's worked out pretty well. Have a seat. This is a bust. But things have become a little rougher out there. This unit needs millions of dollars in parts. You see, Robocop's off warranty. He's one of mine, and I want him back on his feet. Oh. I believe that Murphy's case was unusual, but not unique. We can find someone else, someone to whom the prospect might even be desirable. And now, we need a law enforcement unit capable of meeting the enemy on his own ground. She's screaming psychotic, sir. Well, we are planning to build a toy. I'm carrying in a firepower. To get the job done. I got good news for you. You're gonna have a chance for immortality. With great pleasure, I give you Robocop 2. Ah, uh, yes. Things will be a lot quieter with this boy around. That thing is a killer! Kane! Let's step outside. Behave yourselves! Yes, not the original Robocop, but Robocop 2, which came out in 1990. According to Google here, a quick little synopsis of it, cyborg Detroit policeman Alex Murphy, played by Peter Weller, is the sole officer on duty after the police force goes on strike against evil conglomerate Omni Consumer Products and its push to foreclose on the city of Detroit. Aside from dealing with the normal level of crime, Murphy must take on crime boss Kane, played by Tom Noonan, the spread of a dangerous new drug called Nuke, and the attempt by psychologist Dr. Juliet Fax, played by Belinda Bauer, to create another Robocop using a hardened criminal. Now, the reason why I chose Robocop 2 is because this was my Robocop movie. I grew up with Robocop 2. Granted, I was three-ish when the movie came out, but 
when the third RoboCop movie released, they started showing this flick a lot more on Showtime or Stars or HBO or, or, or whatever it was, because not only was it the latest RoboCop flick, it had more of a, what some would consider a widespread appeal that was established with Terminator 2. Also, my uncle worked on this flick. This was pretty much the movie that brought him over to L.A. to start working on Beverly Hills 90210. So as a kid, I grew up hearing about them shooting RoboCop 2 in Houston, Texas. Yes, Houston, downtown Houston uh, stood in for Detroit, which is, I, I think, like a backhanded compliment because I don't know any city that wants to be an adequate stand-in for Detroit, especially circa 1990. So RoboCop 2... Because of the action, because of the violence, because of the language. I remember there was a really assholey kid in this film that I wanted to be like him. I wanted to play a character like him whenever I was six or seven years old. I didn't want to necessarily be like him. I wanted to be that type of character because I thought that was cool. You watch it now and it's corny as fuck. Plus, it was also directed by Irvin Kirshner, who also directed Never Say Never Again and the most popular of his directorial flicks, Empire Strikes Back. So this was definitely a step back for Irvin Kirshner, but it was an enjoyable step back, I thought. Now, another childhood nostalgic kick of a flick for me, Kevin Costner's Waterworld from 1995. The future. The polar ice caps have melted, and the Earth lies beneath a watery grave. Those who survived have adapted to a new world. What did you see out there in the 15 lunars? Such as? An end? An end to all this water? You're asking the wrong person. Pure dirt. So what's the word? We trading or not? And the human dream is the search for a mythical place called dry land. It doesn't exist! How can you be sure? Because I sailed farther than most have dreamed. I've never seen it. This place, this whole way of living, it's ending. Straight line leading directly. Directly to dry land? Dry land is not just our destination, but it is our destiny! Universal Pictures presents a world unlike any you have ever seen. Dennis Hopper, Gene Triplehorn. Waterworld. Waterworld was directed by Kevin Reynolds, but uh, as the story goes, we all know it was directed pretty much by Kevin Costner. Uh, who by this time was a seasoned director. According to Google again, the synopsis for Waterworld, after the melting of the polar ice caps, most of the globe is underwater. Some humans have survived, and even fewer still, notably the Mariner, 
Kevin Costner have adapted to the ocean by developing gills. A loner by nature, the mariner reluctantly befriends Helen and her young companion, Enola, as they escape from a hostile artificial island. Soon the sinister smokers are pursuing them in the belief that Enola holds the key to finding the mythical dry land. And of course, Waterworld, rated PG-13, also starred, in addition to Kevin Costner, the late, great Dennis Hopper, who just plays a great villain. It's so over-the-top. People consider it cheesy, but I consider it fun. It's a 90s popcorn movie that people just enjoy. Uh, the movie is considered one of the biggest box office flops after Cutthroat Island. Or actually, Cutthroat Island comes out right after this movie, if I remember correctly. So it's not the biggest financial disaster, but it's one of the top biggest box office disasters. But it's a fun one. If you haven't seen it, I urge you guys to go check it out. I know Kevin Costner divides moviegoers because people don't consider him a legit actor or, or even a believable actor. But for what he is, man, the guy's cool. He's a good good guy to Dennis Hopper's bad guy. And for some reason, the movie works. There's great action. There's great explosions. There's great uh, set pieces even. I mean, that whole uh, water set that they're on it's just it's just beautiful production design and it's totally worth checking out even though kevin costner's gills are a bit silly next up for me my last tim 90s nostalgic kick pick from 1997 jackie chan's mr nice guy welcome to what's cooking tonight anybody hungry Television's most popular star. Who is that guy? Is not what you'd expect. I know that guy. He's a gentle soul. I know you. He's Jackie. You're a nice guy. Mr. Nice Guy. <laughs> but if you make the mistake, I don't even know her. Of getting him mad. Yeah! You'd better get out of his way. Now, Jackie Chan proves to the world, nice guys finish first. Nice guy. Jackie Chan stars in a martial arts romp about a TV chef who becomes embroiled in a drug lord's search for an incriminating video. The kung fu fighting cook steps in to save an investigative journalist on the run from a gang of murderous drug dealers, resulting in a potentially fatal mix-up involving her incriminating tape of the gangsters and a children's video. Featuring Jackie Chan in his 90s prime. I remember being in Blockbuster Video, trying to find a movie on a Saturday morning. And I remember being in, a, in an action kung fu kick at that time. So I was, what, 
nine, 10 years old, I came across this flick and there was only one left. Actually, I think there was only one to rent. And I was blown away. How have I not seen this Jackie Chan movie yet? Let alone, why did my father not locate a movie theater to take me to go and see this Jackie Chan movie? It's an absolutely delightful flick. It actually got good reviews at the time, despite it being a movie where Jackie Chan is a is featured as a TV chef. But the action in this flick is absolutely stellar. Guys, it's Jackie Chan Prime. He was in his prime for a long ass time. Uh, this is right before he did Rush Hour. This is right before he just blew up and became a complete American sensation, I suppose. Even though I think he's always been well-loved here. But the stunts in this movie, awesome. My favorite 90s action movies for this rendition, I suppose... Robocop 2 from 1990, Waterworld from 1995, and then, of course, Mr. Nice Guy from 1997. Yeehaw, people. All right, well, that does again bring us to the end of our three squared next week. As I mentioned already, we're going to be doing news. But until then, it is time for the movies, is it not, sir? Why, yes, it is. Well, then, let's do it, folks. It's... The movie we Alright, and this week's movies are Christopher Robin, Eighth Grade, and Blind Spotting. Where do you want to start, sir? Ooh, uh, so this is a tough one for me because I'm I'm wanting to go with least favorite, but oh, it's a it's me, a I, me, it might be me, kind of a toss up. What's that? Let, let, let me help you. Let me help you. Christopher Robin was my least favorite. Okay, that, let's go for it. Does that take some pressure off? Oh, for sure. Okay. <laughs> All right, folks. Christopher Robin. I do like a party. Come on, babe. What should happen? If you forget about me. Silly old bear. I won't ever forget about you, Pooh. I promise. Not even when I'm a hundred. We should be working this weekend, Robin. But I, I promised my wife and daughter I'd take them away this weekend. All hands on deck. You won't be coming to the cottage. Well, it can't be helped. Your life is happening now, right in front of you. What to do, what to do, what to do. What to do indeed. Pooh? Christopher Robin. No. The tree I remember was in the countryside, not here in London. There's no opening. I suppose it's where it needs to be. That's a silly explanation. Why, thank you. Pooh, why are you here? Oh, yes, I need your help. I've lost all of my friends. Let's get to the bottom of this. Look up, Pooh. Here I come. Uh, It would appear that I am stuck. Have you just eaten honey? I have not just eaten honey. I wonder which way. I always get to where I'm going by walking away from where I have been. Do you? That's the way I do it. Hello, you. Christopher Robin, it's you playing again. <laughs> Let's go and see if we can find Piglet. I've already stayed far too long. Hello, everyone. It's Christopher Robin! So nice to see you all again. Why, thank you. Silly old bear. I was wrong about work. I was wrong about everything, and I've got to get back to my family. Farewell, Christopher Robin. I would have liked it to go on for a while longer. Perhaps it's our turn to save Christopher. You must be Madeline. Wait, you're the bear in my father's drawings. Yes. Do you know where he is? I do. <laughs> Let's bounce! I 
just you saw the most preposterous imposter. Look at him. Piglet! If anyone wants to clap, now is the time to do it. Alright, we got 2018 American fantasy comedy drama films directed by Mark Forster, uh, written by Alex Ross Perry and Allison Schroeder. This is uh, actually inspired by uh, Winnie the Pooh, the actual book by A.A. A. Milne and E.H. Shepard, and is basically kind of like a continuation of the of the franchise, but but as much for the adults of today as for the kids of today, and we have a the 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 primary crux of the movie is Christopher Robin as a grown up who is struggling with life on the whole and has to kind of rediscover what it is that made the Hundred Acre Wood and Winnie the Pooh and Owl and Rabbit and Eeyore and Piglet and Kanga and Roo so important to him. He has to also balance this against the realities of the world and the realities of his family that he that he has in this context. And, of course, shenanigans ensue. Now, I think this is just a fantastic, family-friendly movie. And I think that in terms of the nostalgia kick... Uh, Disney is firing on all cylinders, and while I did not get a chance to take my family to see the movie, uh, I will be picking it up for them as soon as it comes out on Blu-ray, because I know my kids will love it, and I believe my wife will enjoy it as well, and it'll be there for them to watch going forward. But even though the nostalgia is there, the story itself is really bland. And outside of purposeful tugging at the heartstrings and the nostalgia that is, that is really almost being like, it's almost like you're being beaten over the head with it. It's like they want you to focus on that, then allow that to help you enjoy the story. And it, for me, it kind of demonstrates how weak the story really is. I, and that, I don't know, that's really all I have to say. I, I, I know a lot of people are picking on the CGI a little bit, mainly because it's a little bit more realistic. And so that that was the thing. And then, of course, everybody seems to be picking on Tigger's eyes. But, I mean, it's, while it's not normal, but whatever, didn't really bother me that much. What's, what's wrong with his eyes? They're, uh, they're green. Oh. He's never had that before. They've always they normally just been, white just black? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're just normally black, like button eyes. Oh. And... Again, I, I really, I mean, Chris, uh, I'm sorry, Chris Robin. <laughs> Ewan McGregor does a great, does a great job in terms of his ability to act. But it just doesn't seem to come together very well. So I give this one a 2.75 out of 5. 
and that's all I have to say. It's a, it's, it's, it's not that great of a movie. It's, but it's not bad, and it's a good family movie, and I think your kids will love it. Two point seven five out of five. I definitely liked this one a little more than you. I, I thought it was very sweet. I like Pooh's little one-liners. They're absolutely adorable, and I, I think that alone is kind of worth the price of admission. Because they're just spot on. You have the guy who's been doing the friggin' voice of Winnie the Pooh and Tigger since like the 80s, still doing the voice of Winnie the Pooh and Tigger. I was actually a little underwhelmed with Owl, who used to be my favorite. Toby Jones did the voice of Owl in this film. But I'm used to Owl having that shh, that shh kind of to his voice. I don't. It's not a lisp, but when he would talk, he would... He would have like a little whistle to his voice, and my dad used to do it whenever I was growing. You're talking up. about Just... the that's Gopher, that's not Owl. Oh, really? Yeah, Owl was the learned one who always talked on and on and on because he was the wise old owl and everything was always very important. And he would just kind of meander. Gopher was the one who was choice, you know, would have the little whistle when he would talk. And they even made a little self-aware joke the very first time he showed up because they're like, why are you always bothering us? And then he's like, I don't know. I wasn't in the books. And then he ducks back down into the ground. I think I missed that then. Maybe maybe I forgot that it was Gopher and Al because whenever I was a kid, I was just probably crying nonstop while watching Winnie the Pooh because I, I it used to definitely tug on my heartstrings a lot because of how emotional I don't know why but Winnie the Pooh just makes me so emotional and I, I guess maybe it's something more very depressing with me that maybe it's something that I I yearn for that sense of childhood wonderment and not knowing all the bad stuff that I know today and Christopher Robin, the, the film Christopher Robin, definitely captures all of that. I just wish the movie focused on Pooh and the, and the other animals than focusing on Christopher Robin and spending so much time outside of the Hundred, the hundred Acre Wood. Because the time that they do spend in the Hundred Acre Wood is kind of scary. <laughs> like, a lot of weird, kind of scary things happen. And... A lot of the things that I, I didn't really care about, all of a sudden, everything that I love from the Winnie the Pooh books and the Winnie the Pooh cartoon happens. Like, the characters appear and they say the things that they're supposed to say and and, and the emotions that I, 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 I'm supposed to feel, I, I, I felt. It made all the other things that bugged me just go away. And I know that's in a way a backhanded compliment, but I really liked this movie, and it definitely could have been so much better. Yet, I still give it a 4 out of 5. I thought Ewan McGregor did good. I thought everybody did a good job. I hated the whole job thing. He had to do well by his job, and at the very end, you know, he forgets the paperwork, and that is what gets all the animals out of the 100-acre wood, is to save Christopher Robin so he can have all his paperwork for the job and yada, yada, yada. But then at the end of the movie, Chris Robin has his aha moment. As an audience member, you don't even get the connection, you know, that he makes. So that aha moment is forced, put there just in the movie. 
That stuff just really bothered me. And yet I still give the movie a four. They do so much right, but what they get wrong, they really get wrong. But what they get right, they really get right. But I do agree. I totally agree with you, Matt. Oh, well, that's okay. That's all right. I, I'm honestly surprised that uh, this is the, I think this is truly the first Disney movie, especially in this vein, that I believe that I have enjoyed less than you. So that's, that's pretty, it's pretty unique. Pretty unique. All right. Well, then that leaves us with eighth grade and blind spotting, sir. Where, where would you like to turn? All right. My second least favorite flick, blind spotting. Then let's do it, folks. Blind spotting. Is this? Oh, oh, oh hey, hey, I, I would like to get out. Look at this! I'm better one in the glove, though. Yeah. Hey. I ain't trying to go back to jail. Two hundred dollars. Let me Collins. Out. Not Collins' gun. Very nice. Oh, I just got an Uber pickup. <laughs> you got it. Is this an Uber? Hell yeah! Put him up like this. You got him. I'm a tough guy. Do me a favor. I got three days left on this probation. When you got that gun on you, just don't tell me about it. Plausible deniability. Oh, do you mean this gun? Get out. <laughs> Good night, Colin. No. Bro. Stop! 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 Don't you! Don't stop! You are a convicted felon, Mr. Hoskins. You are now that until proven otherwise. How? Prove otherwise at all times. Not enough. Stop! Don't shoot, don't shoot! <laughs> you know, you don't have to act ghetto to hang out here. You need to get rid of Miles. Miles, this is my best friend. He's gonna put you back in jail or he's gonna get you killed. Don't make me write you up for your last week. The judge will extend your time here a year. That is the life we live in, and it's been since the beginning, and you know we stuck in that soil, loyal. Don't be who you is! Every time you come around, you monsters got me feeling like a monster in my own town. I ain't no killer. All right, 2018 American comedy drama film written, produced, uh, produced and stars Rafael Casal and David Diggs. Uh, Carlos Lopez Estrada is the director. And uh, we've got a uh, uh, supporting cast of Janina uh, Gavankar, Jasmine Cephas-Jones, Ethan Embry, Tisha Campbell-Martin, uh, Utkarsh Ambudkar, and Wayne Knight. So basically what we have here is a parolee, uh, Colin, who is trying to get just get by the last three days of a sentence that he is on parole for. And of course, with just three days left, the fucker gets to witness a police shooting and the pressure is on, you know, shenanigans ensue. Now, this movie... This movie for me is a very, very complicated movie. And I think that it is, it is clearly intentionally so, but I think that it is, it is blatant to its detriment. I, it is interesting to watch. 
I don't want to necessarily say a reverse case for gentrification because you do kind of see that in, uh, Colin's, I'm sorry, in David Diggs's character of Colin. And then, and then you've got Raphael Casal as Miles. And he's kind of the wild and crazy irreverent guy who seems to be not really caring what's happening with his life. But then you also see Colin and it's, I don't necessarily, I don't, I don't know. It's kind of hard to peg it because it's not purposely done as a racial role reversal. But at the same time, the race in and of itself is highlighted and played upon throughout the film. And not just race as a whole, even, even between the dynamic of the two, of these two, uh, of these two guys. Moreover, we have a white cop shooting a black citizen. Shooting down, that's that's the cop shooting that he sees. And you're kind of watching this unfold against a backdrop of of, of, of a real cityscape. And so all of these things play in. And I think what's really strong is the, the strongest things about this film, for me, are the direction and the dialogue not necessarily the writing on the whole but the dialogue you are all of the characters are very very clearly written and they're very very clearly demonstrable it's they're portrayed in such a way that that the subtle tonal shifts in the characters and purposeful growth or lack thereof is very easily seen and demonstrated through their dialogue, especially in some, I mean, the, it's not really even monologues, soliloquies. I mean, there are soliloquies in this film. And again, it's to showcase the, com- the complexity of the situation that they're in. But the story, as it unfolds, is slightly weaker than then the sum of its parts would have you to believe. And for me, it's because that story suffers, the narrative on the whole suffers because it's trying to be so complex and it's trying to do so many different things that despite the fact that it shines well in the dialogue and the characters, the narrative, the story suffers and the, but don't get me wrong even still i would say estrada still succeeds more than he fails um or i wouldn't even say say fails there's more success than shortcomings in the direction of the film and i think that comes out because of the strength of the characters because it's not just enough to have great dialogue it's enough to, you've got to have that dialogue well set within the scene and that weird juxtaposition of great dialogue but not a strong story not a strong narrative because of its because of it being blatantly complex leaves me with a weird taste in my mouth i think it's a good movie and i think in a certain way it's an important movie too but it's not a great movie either so i give this one a 3.5 out of 5 i think it's good and i think that it's worth watching, but I think it's almost too smart for its own good in a lot of ways. 
So 3.5 out of 5. What do you got there, Tim? So blind spotting is one of the most enjoyable surprises of the year and the most sleekly made heavy-handed flicks I've seen in some time. Based on its synopsis about a convicted felon while serving his final days on probation, witnesses an Oakland police officer shoot a black man in the back, one would think that this would be played straight as a gritty drama, not with extremely likable characters and great humor. Maybe that falls in line with the societal and racial issues that the film brings up. And those societal and race issues that the film brings up is called blind spotting. It's when people interpret an object, a person, or even a situation differently from one another. The most simplistic example that the flick gives is that there are two people looking at the same picture. One person sees a face, the other a lamp. The societal example that the flick gives is a news reporter reports the death of an ex-convict after he or she dies due to criminal activity. Some people would feel that justice was served and the ex-con received their just desserts, while others react with sadness and can see the ex-con as a human being and possibly a victim of an often cruel and unrelenting justice system. The performances are what shines bright from beginning to end keeping the story fresh and engrossing, followed by the visual style and the writing that only slightly loses its luster when the heavy-handedness takes the stage. However, the performers and the filmmakers are slick, and they easily transition out of those heavy moments. The heavy moments start off small, eventually ballooning into something that changes the film's overall tonal course into what feels like a whole other flick. The big moments are not necessarily contrived, because the seeds were planted earlier on, but they are obvious and overtly preachy. The overall quality in its storytelling then takes a considerable dip. I know that sounds a little bad, <laughs> But it's a very good movie. The two leads are incredibly charismatic. They give stellar performances. But damn, 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 does it get too heavy-handed. Then things kind of fall to the other side of the spectrum, where the movie, in one instance, can be fun, a little over-the-top, character-driven, a little bit story-driven. Uh, there you know, some really goofy humor and goofy edits and cutscenes and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, it's social commentary and rapping, even. Like, serious, political, social rapping. The person that you're rooting for, like, you don't know if they're about to crack and just fuck everything up for themselves or not. So I'm going to give this flick, Blind Spotting, 4 out of 5. It's a good one, folks. Go and check it out. It's been getting rave reviews. People have been talking about it nonstop, especially out here. Definitely worth a watch. Look at you. Four's all over the place. All right. Well, then, folks, that's going to leave us with 8th grade. Hey, guys. Uh, it's Kayla back with another video. So... The topic of today's video is being yourself. Being yourself can be hard, and it's like, aren't I always being myself? And yeah, for sure. But being yourself is like not changing yourself to impress someone else. A lot of people like call me quiet or shy or whatever, 
But I'm not quiet. Most quiet, Kayla Day. I don't talk a lot at school, but if people talk to me and stuff, they'd find out that I'm like really funny and cool and talkative. By the way, I like your shirt a lot. It's like so cool. What? said one more week of eighth grade, right? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, huh? Okay, so growing up can be a little bit scary and weird. We will begin to explore these changing bodies of yours. It's gonna be lit. As always, make sure to share and subscribe to my channel, Gucci. I think you're so cool. Maybe you just need to put yourself out there a little. I'm gonna stop eating with you if you keep doing You said I could say one thing. I'm really like nervous all the time. I try really hard not to feel that way, but you just need to face your fears and let people know they're really you. Just grab my phone. How to charge it? Yeah, I mean sometimes I charge it too, but my my phone. I. Just because things are happening right now doesn't mean they're always gonna happen. Who was in there? Just sort of my hopes and dreams. Right. I was a complete mess when I was your age. Really? Eighth grade is the worst. You never know what's next, and that's what makes things exciting and scary and fun. When did you get Snapchat? What grade? Fifth grade. Fifth grade? Oh, what? Yo, it's a 2018 American comedy drama film. This one is written and directed by Bo Burnham in his feature film directorial debut. And this one, of course, follows eighth grader played by uh, Elsie Fisher, who is struggling to finish her last week of classes before embarking on the adventure, the whirlwind that is high school. So, um, all right. I'm really torn about this movie because I I don't think the movie is as good as everybody thinks it is. It's not to say it's not a good movie. Again, I I don't want to. I'm not trying to upset the apple cart j just for the sake of shock value or daring to be different. But I think people put a lot more stock in Bo Burnham than than he deserves. It's just my it's my personal opinion. I am clearly not as successful as he is, and he's only twenty seven. I think that's part of the problem. The guy has definitely been around for a while, and he was one of the first YouTube stars, as it were, and he's extremely clever, extremely gifted, extremely talented. And I think people are confusing his ability to create a turn of phrase with the ability to tell a good story. And it's also easy, it's also easier in terms of directing what it is that you write when it's what you have written. 
And I think that a lot of the things that have come to the fore on the screen are things that were changed during the production. And of course, we all know nothing, nothing, your, your script is not 100% the same, but shit, your script's usually not even the, barely even the same thing by the time you get done with a shooting script. But I, when I watched this movie and I watched it unfold, this just seemed to me to be more about trying to make it feel like it's important that this eighth grade is in the now versus the fact that eighth grade, the core experience of the eighth grade, despite all the technology, despite the years, despite the present, it hasn't changed as much as we think it has. And you're, and, and it's still about watching a human a human being take that next step in the evolution. And for me, I think that the best scene that clarifies this is when uh, Kayla, who is played by Elsie Fisher, asks her dad to burn the time capsule. And you see that the dad comes through and he tells her how she's, you know, no, you know, you fill me with pride. I'm always happy with you. Uh, you know, it could never be sad. Whatever. I think that scene kind of encapsulates the ability for this story to be told. But I think that also is the reason why people are going crazy over this film. On the whole, it's not really doing anything else that's new. On the whole, it's not doing anything that we really haven't seen before. But it's coming wrapped in a Bo Burnham package. And it's, and again, I'm not saying that it's not good. I'm not saying that it's not worth seeing. I just don't think it's as strong and as powerful as everyone is making it out to be. And again, I think that's like the best scene of the whole movie. And I think it's a very pivotal scene. I think it's a very important scene. But that one scene does not make the whole movie. And the, everything else just kind of seems to be good. It's good, but it's not great. And again, it's good, but it's not great. So here we are again, three and a half, three point five out of five. This is a good movie, but I think people are just so over the moon over themselves because it's Bo Burnham that they're ignoring the, they're just ignoring the lack of strength in the rest of the film. But it is good. 3.5 out of 5. Bring us home there, Tim. I have no idea who the hell Bo Burnham is. I've never seen anything of his ever. I don't give a shit about YouTube personalities or whatever. Going to this movie, I just knew it was written by some 27-year-old guy who has a couple Netflix comedy stand-up shows that I guess he's directed and obviously did the stand-up in. And going to this movie, I did know that a lot of people liked it. It was a critic's pick. I still walked out of this movie thinking that this was a five-star movie. And I sat down plugging this movie and in the rating and all the movie information into my spreadsheet I have, giving it a five-star rating. And I'm sitting here talking about the movie, 
still giving it a five-star rating. I thought it was a wonderful film, a beautiful film, I should say, featuring beautifully written characters, the main girl and uh, her father especially, and a couple of her friends, how every little nuance and little trinket of humanity that Burnham and others decided to play around with and incorporate into this film. I don't know if it was the script or if it was maybe some of the actors that had some ideas to throw in. All of that just rung true. Um, not only to me, but I, but obviously connected with a lot of others. And it's something that is absolutely wonderful. This film features a lot of things that made us love, say, Days and Confused. You know, a lot of us love Days Confused because it's the nostalgic factor, but there was so much of the movie that so much that so many people could actually relate to. Now, is it 105% accurate for everybody? No, not at all. Is it even 50% accurate for everybody? Of course not. But a lot of us can take something from it. And what sets 8th grade and even, you know, movies like Days of Confused. I'm just picking Days of Confused. I mean, there's a lot of better ones out there, of course. Boyhood. I guess Boyhood would be a, a, a good example. The reason why a lot of us like those movies is because we can take a lot from it. And the stuff that we don't take away from it, we can still acknowledge it and understand where it's coming from and how it can incorporate in some way to ourselves or our parents, even. And I really, really liked how they handled the dad, the nuances of the father. Seeing the dad with his shirt off, every time he'd, he'd, uh, he'd come in and tell her goodnight, he always had his shirt off. And I think he was probably in his boxer shorts also, just being a dad. My dad did that for a long ass. Actually, my dad still does that. It's a lot of little nuances, whether if it's a characterization, whether if it's a, a piece of dialogue, whether if it's the comedy, a lot of it was handled with care. And dang gummit, I was just smiling from ear to ear from beginning to end. There are definitely, in my opinion, some nitpicky things that I could say about it, but when it came down to it, I wasn't much affected by that nitpickiness when the credits began to roll. I have my foot in the ground and I am giving this a five. It was a big surprise. I saw this pretty late at night and the theater was packed and it seemed like everybody there had a pretty damn good time. So I highly recommend it to all of you folk listening to this show. Right on, right on. Okay, well then that brings us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be Black Klansmen. That's right, and it's Black K Klansmen. So you got the nice KKK in the middle. Uh, also, Three Identical Strangers. And without further ado, I believe we are now down to the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on! Twin sisters took their father's cocklepot over to join the rescue, came back with a deck full of soldiers. It's everything the Ministry are after. Authenticity and optimism. Contradiction in terms, if you ask me, but this could be a bloody good story. Before they'll give it the go-ahead, they want someone to go down there to talk to the girls. Me? Unless your artist would object. So how did you meet? Came to Ebervale to paint the steelworks. He's one of those artists. Older than you. Yes. Fifty? No. Sixty? 
Oh, Betty's a toff. No one else can afford to be an artist. Actually, his family disinherited him. Because of you? Because of his politics. So what do you think? Day at the seaside, and you never know, if there's a film at the end of it, there might be a better job in it for you. We'll need someone to write the slop. Slop? Girl talk. Women's dialogue. Woof, woof. Right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NetTwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter, if that's your heart's desire. And you can always support the show by going and visiting us on Patreon. So, until next week, this is Matt, saying that thanks to Bo Burnham, I get to say this, but not till I tell you to go check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud and all the other podcast directories that we're available on. So now, thanks to Bo Burnham, I get to say this, I'm grateful for every stupid mistake and dumb joke I tried to make. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, very well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.